This is the Prehistory Guys podcast. I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. Welcome to podcast number 23. Yes, and we're quite excited about this one, aren't we? When are we not? However, we've got special reason to be this time because our guest this month is Dr. Alison Sheridan, hugely respected figure in the archaeological world with, and I hope she won't mind this turn of phrase, a lifetime of experience <laughs> researching myriad <laughs> topics of the Neolithic, Chalcolithic and Early Bronze Age of Britain and Western Europe. Do you know, I wanted to read some of Alison's biography from the National Museum Scotland website. That's a very good idea, but, but if we did that, we wouldn't have any time for the interview. How about um, <laughs> you do an abridged version, perhaps? I'll put the timer on you. <laughs> okay, brace yourself. I'm going in. <laughs> good luck. In November 2019, Alison retired from National Museum Scotland after over 32 years as a curator responsible for the early prehistory of Scotland and of Europe north of the Alps. She headed the early prehistory section of the Scottish History... Dear listener, it is very noble of Rupert to volunteer to read out even an abridged version of Alison's mighty CV. However, we're conscious that you all have lives to lead, and so in the interests of sanity, I am performing an intervention here and cutting Mr Soskin's brave attempt. I'm sure he will forgive me in time. And back to the studio. was principal investigator of an AHRC-funded project to set up an international research network investigating gold gold and gold artefacts in Britain from the Chalcolithic to the end of the Bronze Age. We should also mention that she was awarded the Graham Clark Medal for Prehistoric Archaeology in September 2018 by the British Academy, the Europa Prize in 2019 by the Prehistoric Society, and in 2019 she was elected a Fellow of the British Academy. And... We mustn't forget that in April this year, Alison will be delivering the series of six rhymed lectures on Neolithic Scotland to the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland. Not to mention uh, that she is one of three nominees for Archaeologist of the Year 2020 in the British Archaeology Awards. Uh, voting is open till 20th of February as well, so folks, you've still got time. <laughs> I tell you, we were so lucky to meet and hear Alison speak at the Sunrise Over the Stones conference back in November 2019. Absolutely thrilled she accepted our invitation to join us here. So without further ado, shall we say hello to Alison? Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> hello, Alison. Welcome. Hello, Michael and Rupert. <laughs> hello, Alison. It's great to have you here. Yeah, so what's the, what's the weather like in Edinburgh? Drich. So oh, we're, 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 yeah, we're all celebrating going back into doer mode after being far too oh. happy at Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as we say, we've made the point that um, you've you've done such a lot, and it's so hard to to know where to start. Uh, I suppose it's a problem, you know, interviewing <laughs> archaeologists who've acquired spectacular CVs. So. Uh, where to begin? I mean, where where did you begin, Alison? I got into archaeology when I was 13. Um, I was at North London Collegiate School for young ladies, and the Latin mistress, Miss Margaret Flemington, was absolutely wonderful. And she managed to get me onto a dig of a Roman villa at Dulish in Dorset. And this was the most fantastic, you know, the first time trowel strikes ground, that's it for life. I knew I wanted to be an archaeologist. <laughs> wow. And it's, wow. it's, 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 it's never left me. I adore archaeology. It is constantly fulfilling, fascinating, challenging, exciting. I've had the best job in the world. And in fact, um, thank you for reading out my CV. I've now actually just, <laughs> uh, I've just retired. It's all over now. Well, it's not really all over. Um, I've, I retired on the 1st of November and I'm now a research associate at National Museum Scotland, but I will never stop doing archaeology. And I, in fact, I am as busy as ever. And the only difference is that I now go to work in my slippers. <laughs> and oh, the bliss of working that. from yes. home! Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. So, what was the uh, trajectory from uh, your uh, Latin mistress to um, being a proper professional, grown-up uh, archaeologist? Then, well, I um, my. 
I did A-levels in Latin, Greek, and actually modern history. Yeah. Uh, then I did S-level Latin, and then I went to Cambridge and did archaeology and anthropology um, with uh, social sciences as a, a first-year option as well. Mm-hmm. And then I went on and I did my PhD there. And, and after that, I actually... A lot of my work was done in Northern Ireland. I lived in Belfast for eight years during the Troubles, so that was character oh, for me. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, and because I was trying to find out... Um, about patterns of Neolithic pottery production, this meant that I actually had to go and get raw clay samples. So at the height of the Troubles, there I was on Cave Hill above Belfast in a culvert digging clay. And I looked up <laughs> and there were two police officers with their rifles and they said, what, what are you doing? And I said, uh, oh, I'm from Cambridge University, la, la, la. And they said, oh, okay, because we, we've been following you all afternoon and we're wondering what you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> so it was that was great fun. Um, and, and then I, uh, after I finished my PhD, I was a junior fellow in the Institute of Irish Studies at Queen's University, Belfast. And mm. I also taught there and I taught uh, the Workers' Educational Association. And mm. that was very, very, very useful. So I've been doing a lot of lecturing and and. And, and disseminating archaeology at various levels from, you know, folks who are very, very keen uh, but might yeah. not know very much to ultra-specialists. And yeah. it's all mm. it's all challenging and, and great fun. Fantastic. So, obviously, ceramics has been a big part of your work. And mm. uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because it's, it's very interesting. One of the things that I think uh, a lot of people, you know, publicly, a lot of uh, people don't tend to know that much about, you know, how you, um, how you actually place things socially with the different styles of pottery, you know, that, uh, that, and the way <laughs> these have moved around uh, the continent and into Britain and things like that, because that was a big yes. part of your PhD, wasn't it? as well yes indeed i mean I, I think the design of pottery is so important in telling us about expressions of identity mm. and f- function and by looking at patterns of who is using similar pottery in different areas this raises all sorts of questions is it similar because it's being made in one place and then is being moved you know so people are acquiring pottery from production centers? Or is it the idea of making pottery and the know-how that is moving? And of course, pottery was one of the key novelties that we find um, with the Neolithic. It's part of the defining aspect of the Neolithic, as far as we're concerned in Britain and Ireland, because it was a completely alien technology. So the pre-existing Mesolithic populations who'd been here for millennia had no knowledge of making pottery. They didn't need to make it. And yeah. so for, for their containers, they, they, could use, they would have used wood or birch bark or uh, animal skin or whatever. They could have cooked in animal skin if they wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so therefore, the appearance of pottery is a very major thing. And you, okay, people can learn how to make pottery, but the very earliest pottery that we find in Britain and Ireland is exquisitely well-made. It's mm-hmm. made by people who've been doing this for centuries or millennia. And so that, to me, is a key clue in where these farmers had come from. And I'm, I'm delighted that now DNA is being done that has demonstrated, basically demonstrated, I'm right, because uh, there's been this <laughs> <Yeah>. enormous, <laughs> enormous argument in, among archaeologists as to whether um, farming was introduced by people from the continent or whether yeah. it was um, it was the, the Mesolithic hunter-gatherer, fisher, foragers, who uh, were the sort of prime movers who had been in contact with the continent for for centuries and who decided to adopt farming and yeah. it's it's quite a, it's a very crucial argument and i've always said that no you know there is no evidence for people being in contact with the continent in the fifth millennium bc you know it's you know these, these hunter gatherers yeah. were basically quite insular yeah? yeah and and there isn't this history of them going on to the mainland and uh, you know, and, and being in contact with people. Yeah. Um, and the, the changes are so dramatic. And it's such an alien lifestyle that I've always argued that it must have been people coming in. And from the style of the pottery, I'm able to say that they came in from at least two areas. So one, they would have come from the Morpion area of Brittany, up mm-hmm. the Atlantic facade, so up the west side. yeah, And they got as, at least as far as Achnacrebeg on the west coast of Scotland, because there is a, is a monument. It's a closed chamber and a simple passage tomb. And inside the passage tomb, there was, a, there was pottery that you mm. could lose in southern Brittany. 
Do you know, yeah. I, I was I was reading um, one of your papers yesterday and that sort of leapt out of me hugely. Mm. I hadn't really realised that before, that, mm. that the pottery that was identified at Athna Kribek is identified as the earliest pottery in Britain. Correct. And I, 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 I just, still stick to that. It just blew yeah. my head off. It's fantastic. Yes. And and I was so one of my retirement presents from my fantastic colleagues was a replica of that pot. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> oh, done by the wow. best, uh, uh, you know, best pottery yeah, yeah. replicator. Yeah. Yeah, this is your principal thing. This is the thing that you're best known for. I think it's fair to say, isn't it, Alison? The, the neolithization yes. uh, of uh, of Britain from the Mesolithic into the Neolithic. But there's a there's a huge arc of experience behind uh, and research behind uh, the synthesis that you've made, yes. which covers so many areas that gives you the expertise to be able to make. Uh, these kinds of uh, determinations. Absolutely. Rupert started off asking uh, about the ceramics, but you, you, you've also been involved in jewellery, uh, Neolithic uh, jewellery. There's the axe head thing, the whole axe head thing. Yes. Um, <laughs> the investigation of Irish passage tombs. God, we could go on, you know, about the, the, the depth of knowledge it requires to, to be able to make the synthesis that you do. Exactly. And I've been very privileged in the museum to have had the opportunity to do this in-depth research over the years. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I, I can't emphasise enough that you, you don't just instantly become an expert in pottery. I mean, I, I wouldn't claim to be an expert, but it's only by looking at lots and lots and lots of pottery and by understanding what was going on in different areas, including um, the continent, that you yeah. can really get a grasp and make sure that when you're arguing, you're arguing from the basis of being able to back up what you say with evidence. That yeah? was a question I was going to ask you, Alison. Does the job of principal curator of early prehistory at National Museum of Scotland give you more scope to involve yourself in a wider reach of research areas than if you'd, say, been a head of department at a university oh, God, or something yes, like that? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I've, I've been very lucky insofar as, okay, there's been a certain amount of administration and management in my job, sure. but there's been enough space for me to be able to take advantage of all of the amazing opportunities that working in the museum gives you. So, Brilliant. for example, people will be coming in from all over Europe with queries or they'll say, we're doing a project and we would like to have access to the objects in your collection. So mm -hmm. it's through that that I got involved, for example, with Project Jade, which was a fantastic international project um, led by Pierre Petriquin, who is a really, really inspirational chap. And he's based in in Grey, uh, in, uh, yeah. in the, the Jura. Well, before we get on to the, the the, the detail of the neolithization, which I think is, you know, the, the thing that we'd like most to be able to convey to our listeners. Yes. Speak a bit about uh, Project Jard, because Rupert and I have talked quite a lot uh, about axe trade and uh, jadeite axes and so on and so forth. Yes, and, we have. Uh, <laughs> yes. In, in, in the past. And uh, Project Jard, I think, has probably fed into a lot of the information that we, in turn, have been giving out without yeah. realising it. Right. Oh, that's great. Yes, because I've I've heard your fantastic podcast with Kath Walker, and that's yeah. brilliant. And that's that's really really great. Um, yeah, Projet Jad. It was it started off as a million euro international project run mm. uh, from the University of Besançon, where um, they were aware of the fact that people for over a hundred years had been speculating as to where the source of the jade, which is a kind of a general term, um, to make exquisite axe heads had come from. And these axe heads had been found in many countries in Europe, lots of them in France, quite a lot in Germany, some in Britain and Ireland. And um, so in 19th century, people said, oh, it must be China, because that was the only place they knew. But there was a, a French uh, geologist called uh, Damour, who in the 1860s, I think, said, actually, it's in the Alps. And I think if you go to oh. Montviso, Monteviso, you right. will find the source. And for some reason, geologists just forgot about this guy or ignored him. And it was only because the Petrequins, um paid attention to what he said, that and the fact that they had been doing ethnoarchaeology in New Guinea among the last 
living people to make stone axe heads. So they came in with a fantastic ethno-archaeological perspective um, so that a lot of geologists would say, oh, well, if it was the Alps, then they, of course they wouldn't have gone up to the high Alps where the initial, you know, the, the basic core sources are. They, would have, they wouldn't have bothered to do that because you can get blocks of jadeite in the um, uh, storm beds. Yeah, it yeah, gets yeah. brought down. And that's a very kind of economistic, uh, you know, it's a very 20th century approach to it. Whereas <laughs> Petrequin said, okay, in New yeah. Guinea, what they do, they go up to the highest mountains because that is the, those are areas that are associated with the gods. That's where the gods and the ancestors live. Yeah. And so by getting stone from these divine areas, the stone itself has divine properties. And by golly, they systematically, every single year, in a very short period, because it's, you know, it's only snow free for a few months each year, they went and surveyed all the valleys around Monteviso and Montebegua for about 18 years. And in 2003, I think that was when they found the first evidence of extraction and working in the high Alps. So this is you know, it's am- absolutely amazing. Yeah. And it was yeah. like 1800 meters above sea level and higher. And they're a husband and wife team, and they are just amazing. And through their determination over the years, they have, they said, okay, we can only understand this, this amazing European phenomenon by looking at it on a European basis. So they collated all the information about distribution, dating evidence and all that from right across Europe, because yeah. what had happened was that people attended to, to study access in uh, on a national basis. So in Britain, people we've had these sort of mad axe people since, what, the 1930s or so, the Implement Petrology Committee, now the Implement Petrology Group, the Southwest Implement Petrology Group, etc. Okay. These kind of mad axe people, of, of, of whom <laughs> I am one. Uh, and, and so in, in, in Britain, they have been mapping and studying and documenting these things for a very long time. And, and they were curious. And in the 1970s, the British Museum did some chemical analysis because they, you know, people had wised up to the fact that it was in the Alps, but they didn't know exactly where. But now the Petrocans were able to pinpoint precisely where. They also radiocarbon dated the working places. And by collating information, they are now able to take the overall distribution map and say that some axe heads were traveling as far as 1800 kilometers in, in either direction from the source, so northwestwards and southeastwards. Mm-hmm. But also, they've been able to write the biographies of individual axe heads. So incredibly, yeah, there was one yeah. axe head that started in, on Monteviso, it then went to Brittany, where it was reworked, it then went back, and then it went down to southern Italy. So in its lifetime, it will have traveled what, 3,600 kilometres. I mean, that is just... How how could they tell that? Because, again, by systematically looking at the shape and the specific material that was used, so they're able to say that the finest jadeite was used from about 4,600 BC. It was sawn. Um, They roughed it out... um, Sorry, they would take the blocks um, because you you don't want to do too much work up... you know, on the mountaintop. So you take it down to where you live. And then they could see that these things were then reshaped elsewhere, some in the Paris basin, some in uh, in Brittany, in the Morbihan. And the reason why they reshaped them there was that they they were using these as very, very much um, the sacred objects that featured largely in, you know, as the, it was a hugely um, macho society. So it's almost like a big man theocracy society there. So you you would find individual men being buried under um, uh, uh, funerary monuments that were so large that in one case, the Tumulus Saint-Michel, they built an entire medieval chapel on top of it. (laughs) Yeah. So this is called, this is competitive conspicuous consumption. So for them, yeah, (laughs) these people were able to get the largest axe head. So there's one that's something like 32 and a half centimeters long. And it's really, I mean, it would have taken well over a thousand hours to make that thing in the first place. yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And they, because it was such a macho society, these things were, had a phallic significance as well. Mm, yeah. Mm. So there were symbols. So you've got male power, phallic power, you name it. Yeah. And in fact, in one grave, they buried one of these sticking through an arm ring that was made of the same material, jadeite. So the arm ring represented wow. the female. So this oh, is. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So a more explicit expression of male power is hard to imagine. These were also the people who erected these gigantic standing stones, like yes. Le Grand Menhir Brisé. Brisé. Yeah. Right. And it's Brisé because, probably, they think, because there were some earth tremors around maybe 4,300 BC. Yeah. 
Yeah, I hadn't heard that before. That's yeah. uh, that's fascinating. So yeah. interesting. So so basically, they're you know they're macho society where they were equating big standing stones with penises, with themselves, with male power, collapsed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, are we feeding into one of maybe, I think, one of the drivers that may have caused people to seek shores elsewhere? I think we are, yes, because okay. whatever the the social and ideological sort of bouleversement, if you like to use that term, in the yeah. Morbihan, um, what we see there is that people are starting to use passage tombs. And yes. these are very different because previously the, chamber, the burial chambers has been closed. So once you're buried there, you can't go back in. But from around, say, 4,300, they were building passage tombs. And Serge Cassin has argued that these were in the shape of the womb. So he's thinking that maybe there was a switch in the ideological power base to notions of fertility that are based on female fertility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the passage tomb is the tomb with the womb. So when you are buried, you go back to... Yeah, to Mother Earth or to, to yeah. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, and it was at, is at that um, time or somewhere between 4,300 and 3,900, probably around 4,000, that people came from the Morbihan up to Western, uh, Western Scotland, Northwest and Southwest Wales, and around the coast of the northern half of Ireland. And interestingly, it's at that same time that you find people going down to Northwest Spain and mm. building tombs that look like the tombs that they were building in Brittany at that time. Right. And, yeah, and using pottery that, again, was a Spanish twist on late yeah, Castellic yeah. pottery. So, yeah. it, and, and all the, the team members from Projet Jade are real experts. So it was wonderful to have Serge Cassin, who has spent his lifetime, he's the same age as me, and he is Mr. Breton archaeology. He, you know, <laughs> what he doesn't know about Breton, Neil, I think is not worth knowing. And yes, so you, it was... You, you were responsible for the assemblage of um, uh, data as far as uh, British Isle of Man. Yes, correct. Uh, Ireland, and, and, and the yeah. Channel Islands as well. And yeah. so what that involved was um, borrowing these axe heads and taking them to France, where they would be analysed using a technique called spectroradiometry. And it's yep. a non-destructive technique. And this was very important because in the past, people had been doing petrological thin sectioning, which mm. involves um, cutting a slice or taking a core out of it. And of course, nowadays, no museum would ever allow anybody to do that, quite rightly, mm. Mm. because it's, it's, it really damages these things. But spectroradiometry, thanks to Michel Herrera, who worked at the um, Museum of African, um, African Culture, in Tervuren in Brussels. He is a geologist and um, he he realised that this technique, which was actually used in remote sensing to see if there's water on Mars, could have <laughs> an application in archaeology, which is just amazing. And it yeah. involves um, shining a pure white light on the object and seeing how that light is absorbed and reflected back by the object. Mm. And so it produces a, a, a spectrum. And by comparing your single axe head against their database of about 5,000 other um, axe heads, raw material samples, working debris, they are able to say there is a very high probability that this axe head here was made from um, from material, jadeite from um, that particular valley around Mont Montviso. And in, in one particular case, we have an axe head um, <laughs> found near Dunfermline, and it was from the same block of jadeite as three that have been found in Germany. And it doesn't get any better than that in terms of sourcing axe heads. It's amazing. It's it yeah? fantastic. Fantastic. And again, yeah. it's only by approaching this on an international collaborative yeah. basis. And it was fantastic. So I would borrow these things. And there was one time I had 29 of them in a big red Samsonite suitcase. You cannot fly with them. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, we've all seen Toy Story 2. We know what happens if you give your uh, suitcase in to go to the hole. Don't do it. <laughs> and, uh, and at that time, there was a ferry that went from Rosyth to Zeebrugge. So there I was with my big red suitcase. I had to go through the x-ray machine. So I had 29 axe heads and five pairs of knickers. And... Uh, <laughs> You've got to have priorities. Absolutely. Yeah. And so they said, oh, this is interesting. What's this? What's it? And luckily I had the two files of permissions and export license and everything else that went luckily. with it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And so, so that was great fun. And when we opened the suitcase, it was wonderful. It was a bit like it's a knockout. So people that come from Germany, from Poland, yeah. from all over Europe. And they said, oh, mais c'est magnifique. And because it turns <laughs> out that a lot of ours have this glassy polish on, a far higher proportion yeah. Yeah, yes. uh, than in on the continent. 
So on the continent, they got some which are polished to this glassy finish, but here we've got lots of them. And I said, oh, this is normal for us, mate. Yeah. And so we had such, a, <laughs> such fun. And we were able to say, oh, look at what they've done in that museum there. They've, they've glued a bolt on so they could screw that axe to the wall. Isn't that terrible? And we just had such a good time. Oh, I mean, it, it was very hard work. <laughs> I'm so glad I asked you uh, about Projet Jard because it, it also gives us a, a linchpin, chronologically speaking, mm. and to start talking of, about the Neolithization uh, yes. of, of the British Isles, um, talking about changes in um, in Brittany and, and the Morbihan, mm. um, that uh, m- you know cultural changes that may have been going on there. That, yes, as I say, may have. Uh, moved people to seek pastures elsewhere. Exactly. And then the, the, in, in the Paris Basin, there was another process that was going oh, on. Oh, yes. Yeah, and that was responsible for the other main strand of neolithization. Essentially, people had been farming in the Paris Basin for well over a thousand years. And population, as you know, farming communities tend to have lots of children because you need to have kiddies to help you, you know, tend the the animals and look after the crops and all that. So you tend to get very rapid population rise. And mm-hmm. so by around 4,300 in the Paris Basin, it was perceived that there was, um, you know, it had reached its carrying capacity. There was pressure on, on, on the land. And so it looks as though people moved out in various directions. So northeasterly towards what's now Belgium, yeah. um, and then ultimately to, to northern Germany, but also northwestwards towards Normandy. And uh, and it was one of these little regional groups that then must have got to as far as um, probably the North Pas de Calais region of northern France, where from where obviously you can see the White Cliffs of Dover, mm. and they said, okay, we're going to give it a go, and uh, <laughs> and I then believe that uh, sometime around well up four thousand one hundred four thousand, they then got in their boats and they crossed the channel, and I think oh. and they brought these axe heads with them, and I think that they actually. If they believe that these were magical and they had the power to protect and heal, then if you're going to get into your skin-covered lightweight boat with everything you need, your seed corn and your baby animals, you're going to need all the divine protection you can get. And Mm. so by it's a bit like you know rubbing the lamp to get the genie. If you polish and repolish the axe head so it's got this brilliant shine, then Mm. maybe that's enhancing its, its protective power. So I think, yeah, I think that's probably what was happening. And then when they got here, interestingly, the axe heads had done their job. They protected the people. And so it was important to them to deposit these. So that's why... Um, that's why you find on uh, beside the sweet track, one of sweet these wooden track, trackways yeah. here in, in the Somerset levels, Somerset, yeah. dating to 3807 or 3806 BC by Dendra dating. Beside that is one of these fantastic axe heads. And it wasn't mm. dropped there. It wasn't, it wasn't lost. It was deliberately given to the you know, gods of the water as a way of saying thank you very much because yeah. these things belong in the realm of the gods. And in other mm. cases, they, they put them um, in key places in the landscape. So beside a waterfall or above a, a deep a crevice, or in some cases they would burn them or break them or both. Do you have a, a, a thought process on that? Why would they sometimes break them and burn them as opposed to... What's <laughs> the, what, what do you think might be the social difference between I've... something being left perfect and something being destroyed i think by destroying it you are making sure that that no human being will ever be able to use it again yeah so i think it was part of this same basic ideology of these things belong to the gods and they have to go back to the gods but whether it was just a matter of choice to say okay this time we're going to burn this and we're going to smash it up or we're just going to deposit it in this special place. I, hmm. That's one of the many imponderables. Yes, it is. It's just you can you can make so many stories out of all of it, can't you? It's just so exciting, really. Yes. The migrations. Talk a bit about the, the migrations themselves, because uh, as far as I've read, anyway, you're the first person to have written about uh, this all happening in stages, and that it wasn't just one uh, mm-hmm. spread of culture coming up. Uh, through Britain, that it had to have happened in different stages. And as you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier on, that it is quite wonderful when you have modern measurable technology like DNA analysis and what have you that mm. actually backs up 
uh, earlier theories and the and uh, you know the proposals that you'd made about uh, the way the migrations happened. Yes. Uh, so yes, tell us a bit about that because. Uh, okay. It's, well, I mean, uh, I, I, yeah, I can't claim to be the very first person to suggest that there was more than one flow. In fact, Stuart Piggott in the nineteen fifties talked about a, a western and an eastern um, source of our Neolithic. But yes, he and then he's, that went out yeah, of fashion. Went out very of fame, much so. It? Yeah. So so much that there there was an amazing book called uh, by Julian Thomas on the uh, the birth of Neolithic Britain. And he yeah. d- dedicates an entire section to people like me <laughs> and my colleagues who say that we are trying to uh, well, resurrect a moribund culture historical model. And I say to Julian, I love you, Julian, but you're completely and utterly wrong. And it gets the wrong end of the stick. So my, my uh, mission was not to bring Stuart Piggott back to life. He was a wonderful guy. He was my external <laughs> examiner at Cambridge. Oh, but, wow. Yeah, but we can also see where Stuart's um, model was wrong because obviously we've had 50 years of subsequent developments. And yeah, yeah and, and it's only, it's by having looked very, very carefully at all of the evidence, not because what other people had done in a lot of cases was to focus just on radiocarbon dates. Yeah? yeah, to say hello. Let's let's put together all of the radiocarbon dates for Britain and Ireland, and oh look, here's the picture that um, arises from it, and oh it looks as though people first came to southern Scotland and then they went to southern England, and actually that's a very high risk strategy. You need to understand the whole set of evidence that is available to you. Yeah. Can and I just also, backtrack a moment, uh, sure. uh, Alison, and and that is to to frame for people what the arguments are. Okay. And that is uh, the argument for assimilation of culture by the uh, pre-existing Mesolithic population versus uh, migration by people carrying the Neolithic package, shall we say, mm-hmm. into these shores. Correct. In a nutshell, that's it. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's essentially, yeah, it's essentially an argument about who were the prime movers of this yeah. fundamental yeah. change, and um, there are variants of each argument um, and people are sort of you know, t- t- discussing it endlessly um, but essentially the I mean, and Julian Thomas has been the main proponent of the Mesolithic communities as a prime movers model yeah. and his model is based on the assertion that Mesolithic communities had all, had been in regular contact with farming communities on the continent. I mean, it, yeah. it has to be said that there's a thousand-year gap between the arrival of agriculture as a way of life on the on the mainland continent and in Britain and Ireland. And, mm. and the question is, why is that? Is it because our Mesolithic communities were sort of Brexiteers, the original Brexiteers, they, they sort of turned their back on Europe. They could, <laughs> you know, God knows they could have seen Europe uh, from parts of Britain, but they chose not to interact with these people. Yeah. But Julian is saying, yes, they did interact. And in fact, he's used alpine axe heads as one of the strands of his argument, because he's saying that we know these things, some of these were made 4,500 BC or 4,200, and then they arrive here. So they must have arrived here at that time, that early. And I'm mm. saying, no, 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 no. Not a single <laughs> one has been found in a dated Mesolithic context. Yeah. yeah. So not a single one has been dated to earlier than, say, about 3,800 BC. Okay. In Britain. Okay. okay? Yeah. So I think you're on a very sticky wicket to argue that then, well, there must have been. And other people say, well, just because there isn't any proof of it, that doesn't mean to say it didn't happen. And I'm saying, well, you know, kind of, okay, but in your dreams, mates, you know, at some point, <laughs> let's let us allow ourselves to be led by the evidence that we have. Uh, and now I think that the DNA and the isotope evidence is a very, very strong support for the idea that it was farmers who came. Yes. Okay. Um, and then sort of within the migrant farmers thing, there are various hypotheses. So there's one group of people um, who, as I said, just looked at the pattern of radiocarbon dates. There's another group of scholars for whom I, I mean, I have a great deal of respect for all of these people. And and it has to be said that our argument is a friendly one. You know, yeah, so it's, yeah. there's nothing personal in it. It's completely yeah. an intellectual argument. So Alistair yeah. Whittle and his colleagues are, um, they have been, They've done a major service to archaeology by by getting a whole hundreds of new radiocarbon dates. They did a project mm. that was actually focusing on the causewayed enclosures that you find in southern English Neolithic. Oh, okay, yes, yeah, mainly yeah. in southern England. Yeah. And so, and they, but from the back of that, they said, okay, well, let's look at the the earliest Neolithic, and 
And so they looked at the pattern of dates, but also in a very critical way. So they were very, very rigorous in in saying that some of these dates are absolutely useless or what you're dating is not what you think you're dating. Um, and they combined that with a consideration of the material culture to a certain extent and to the monuments. But what I've done is to say, to place much more emphasis on the variable, the variation in the kind of monuments that people were building in the material culture that they were using. Mm. And and one of the bones of contention is the fact that Aknakribeg has got no radiocarbon dates relating to when it was built. And so yeah. my detractors say, oh, or they tend to ignore it, yeah? Or yeah. they try and explain it away by saying, well, the, the closed chamber and the simple passage in, well, that's a little bit like a shell midden writ large. No, it's not. It's got nothing to do with Mesolithic shell midden. <laughs> nothing, nothing. And what's so interesting now is that we're able to, to see that not so far away. So Akrakuberg is in the West Coast near Oban. Yes. And on Oranze, there were people in a completely Mesolithic way of life who were contemporary with these Breton farmers. Yeah. And they may well have lived parallel lives and not got together for a long time. But as soon as they did, they it's as though they abandoned their Mesolithic way of life, maybe yeah. because they thought, look, here is a guaranteed year-round supply of food. It's an easier way of life, which mm. was actually a little bit of a fallacy because your, if your crops fail and your animals get ill, you've had it. But we also know from Rascoli Cave, which is one of the caves around Oban, is that people were burying people in caves at that time. And two of those individuals have DNA signatures that prove that they were descended from a mixture between the local hunter-gatherers and the local yeah. French farmers. That oh, is there you go. awesome. Hey. Awesome. I rest my yeah. case, my lud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've got four strands of neolithization in yes. your schema, um, uh, Alison. Um, they're they are chronological. You've got one, two, three, and four. And yeah. in your description, they're, they're sort of roughly chronological, aren't they? The first roughly. one. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I find fascinating is the story extrapolated from a couple of uh, <laughs> cattle bone <laughs> in dates yeah. from yeah. Ferreter's Cove. Yeah, Ferreter's mm. Cove. It's an amazingly important site that was dug by the late Peter Woodman, a wonderful archaeologist. And it's, essentially, it's a seasonal camp uh, close to the sea in southwest Ireland and it's completely Mesolithic so it, it, it was occupied by people who led their life by hunting and fishing and foraging and he realized that in among the bones there were actually a very small number of cattle bones domesticated cattle it's very important because you don't get oroxen which is a wild version of cattle in Ireland yeah. You, you certainly didn't get uh, domesticated. So these animals or parts thereof must have been imported from the continent. Yeah, yes. And the, the, the most likely, and given the date there, it's something like 4,350-ish BC. And so the most likely area from which they me, were brought were northwest France. So again, Brittany, the area around Brittany. Yeah. And, um, and so the scenario that strikes me as being a rational one is that perhaps there was a very small movement of a small number of people, a very small farming group that, for whatever reason it might be to do with the currents, ended up in southwest Ireland, pitching up close to where these people who lived, who you know, used Ferritus Cove lived. And they tried to set up as farmers yeah, with their cattle. But locals weren't remotely, they saw them, they thought, who are these foreigners? Yeah, And they thought, Blimey, what are those animals? These yeah, are good the meat. Yeah. So they hunt, <laughs> they hunted, killed and ate their cattle. And because there wasn't a critical mass of either people or cattle, therefore, effectively, the Neolithic died out there and then. There's an early shower for the Neolithic in Southwest Ireland. <laughs> yeah, yeah? Yeah. So, and, and my detractors or people who had take a different view say, how can you tell that it wasn't just a joint of meat that was brought across? And I, I think that's, that's kind of, uh, it's a little bit... Uh, academic. Um, yeah. I mean, what we can say is, and, and they're also saying, how can we tell that there wasn't regular contact, that the, the fishers and hunters from Southwest Ireland weren't regularly going to Brittany on their holidays or whatever. And the mm. reason, and, and I say, well, to point to any evidence whatsoever in Brittany for Southwest Irish Mesolithic artifacts mm. within mm. a Breton Neolithic context, they don't exist. 
Yeah. yeah. I just so, I just thought it's brilliant. I thought I'd let you uh, tell uh, that story because it's one of those brilliant examples where you've got an extraordinary anomaly mm. that you know has to be explained. Yes. Uh, uh, and can create such a story. Uh, Rupert and I have um, previously uh, thought it, it's it's like um the the old um lateral thinking yes. puzzles, you know. <laughs> Where you've exactly. got a piece of coal and a, and a, and a carrot in a field, sort that out. You know? <laughs> yeah. Or even yeah. just the coal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think it, it was a case of la vache qui ne rit pas. We... It's amazing, though, when you get any piece of archaeological evidence where you, it's a piece of evidence that in itself is so tiny, but mm. the ramifications are so huge. And one of the things also that I've uh, picked up in, in one of your uh, papers was, uh, which I didn't know about previously, was knowing that uh, that vines had been imported from the single grape pit mm. that they found at Hambledon Hill Causeway enclosure. That's right. And you think out of out of all the things that somebody could <laughs> find, a single grape pit. Thank God yes. they found thank it. Thank God. And that was the great <laughs> late Roger Mercer, who was uh, I dug I dug there. I didn't find that grape pit, but uh, <laughs> thank heavens he had very rigorous archaeological techniques. So they did sieving, and it's it was by doing that very careful going through of the sediments that they found that. I mean, fantastic work. It's an extraordinary mm. piece of detective work. Though. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. <laughs> but that does show the importance of of the uh, of the rigor and the intricacy uh, it does. of it all, doesn't it? But also, as Private Eye pointed out once, there was a lovely cartoon that said the shirt. So it's a tiny little shirt. The artist's impression, and the artist's impression was this entire hill fort you know, with buildings <laughs> and people and weapons. And <laughs> so, uh, as archaeologists, we mm. always have to be uh, aware of the mm. limits of inference. <laughs> I think one thing. Oh, I mean, it, it, would um, be it would be difficult to pick through every single bit of of the the four stages, you know, because you need yeah. the visuals, uh, you know, to be able to explain the passageways or the or the routes by which yeah. you think people have come in. I think the the main thing to try and um, break down and, and get clear, though, is if we come from the the, the point of um, the neolithization being of a migration mm -hmm. is that instinctively people think that the most likely scenario is the shortest journey across the channel mm -hmm. into Kent, into Kent. Yes, indeed. And and in fact, that has been the position taken by Alistair Whittle, um, where he and his team argued that people landed in Kent, where, it has to be said, um, at Coldrum, uh, there, there are you know, megalithic tombs which have produced very, very early dates, about 4,100 BC from the human yeah, remains. Yes. Brilliant. That's great. And he argued by looking at the pattern of dates right across Britain and Ireland, that people landed there and then they spread out northwards and westwards, yes. you know, particularly picking up speed around 3,800 BC. And my objection to that has always been to say that actually that doesn't take into account the variability that we see in the kind of monument. So if they really were spreading from Kent, why the hell are they creating very, very different kinds of monuments in southwest England or in western Scotland or and using very different kinds of pottery? So, and, and in fact, with that... Uh, I call it the carinated bowl Neolithic. This is the, the yeah. sort of, yeah, that started off originally in the Paris Basin, but then got to us from northern France. Mm -hmm. um, I think they could well have sailed right the way up the North Sea coast of Britain as far as Caithness, because yeah. we do have early dates from Scotland. And so what we're trying to do now is get more and more and more dates. And depending on the Bayesian modelling of, of dates, you can... Yeah, depending how you model it, you can get different interpretations coming out. Yeah. And mm. so for all that um, Whittle et al. Gathering Time project was a fantastic project and it's incredibly influential, as they themselves have acknowledged, it's only as good as the assumptions that you put into the modeling process in the beginning. Okay. Yeah. And so, and they are wonderful enough people to be very open minded. So, if somebody mm -hmm. else can come across with, um, you know, a more plausible alternative, then they are more than happy to consider that and to remodel. Mm. So, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so I so I I personally um, favour the idea of a broader diaspora from northern France, which may yeah. have taken place over several generations. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And then what they did, they were looking for good places to land, and they were looking for good agricultural land, and they certainly found that in northeast Scotland. So the area around Aberdeenshire, and particularly along the major rivers, you have a big concentration of the earliest Neolithic um, occupation sites. Yes. Um, yeah. And 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 clearly they flourished there, uh, and these the early people would build these gigantic they call them halls but they're all yes. they're like com- communal houses yeah yes and and i think this was because if you're coming in several boats as you know several family groups when you arrive to this unknown territory you want to stay safe and you do that by building a big barn-like place to live in and you stay there and you get established until you feel secure enough to bud off into individual family hams- uh, yeah, farm estates. Yeah, yeah? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I that makes a lot of sense because you only yeah. find these halls um, at the very beginning of the Neolithic and in only certain parts of Britain. Oh, yeah? Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And they're specifically associated with the Carinated Bull Neolithic. One thing I'm intrigued about with the the large houses is uh, how common you you've written about the the burning of the large houses. So yes. when people started to separate out into maybe smaller family groups or what have you, and they actually destroyed the large communal building that they'd burst uh, built in the first place. Yes, uh, was does that as far as the archaeological record is concerned, does that seem to have been a common theme, or was that something that we've just seen? Um, in isolated places. In, in terms of halls, it's a common practice, and I think, it, and it would have been absolutely deliberate. It would necess- not, wouldn't have been a, a, a hostile act. It's not as though people got mm-hmm. attacked, because actually, if you try and burn down a ruddy great building that's twenty-three meters long by eight meters wide <laughs> with a very big roof on it, uh, it's going to take more, you know, more than a, a match and a you know bit of kindling. And we think rather that this was a, a, a fantastic. A ceremonial act to say, okay, we are burning our bridges now. We feel safe enough. Goodbye to all that. We're going to go on and and forge ahead. And what they also did was to create um, funerary monuments that stood as a permanent memorial in the landscape. So Mm. they're able to say, this is our land because our ancestors are buried here. So in a way, the long barrows that they built would have been a reminder of them, a statement of identity. This idea of uh, of termination uh, of um, property of uh, buildings, uh, whatever, uh, seems to be a, a theme that comes down the ages. On Orkney, many of the buildings, the uh, megalithic buildings, at the, at the Ness, uh, and later into in the the Brocks, um, there seems to be this honouring of a of a decommissioning process. That's when, right. Yeah, when things change from one yes. end of use to the next phase, that they, they always seem to take great pains to mark the occasion. Absolutely, yes, because it was fundamentally important to them. And mm-hmm. the Broker, there's this absolutely spectacular deposit of the remains of hundreds of cattle when yes, they yes. yes yeah and 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 in fact there's been a lot of very detailed radiocarbon dating work to see where that uh, when that occurred in the l- longer history of this very complicated site mm. and and in fact we've was it that they thought the end of the world was coming? Because by yeah. killing well they they think possibly as many four hundred cattle, which must have yeah. represented you know, a large chunk, if not most of the cattle population on Orkney at that time, did they think mm. it was it was it a millenarian thing? You know, the world's yeah, ending, yeah. therefore let's have a, a fantastic feast. Or what? Yeah. You know, we don't know. But to go back to the burning thing, I mean it can be done for various reasons. So um we know that with with smaller houses, it may well be that that there was a practical reason. So if they get infested with infested with with you know insects or bugs or whatever or they you know over time when you're living in a house it gets pretty filthy um mm. there might have been a practical reason for bu- for burning some houses down yeah mm. so i think we have to be careful you know don't don't use a single paintbrush to explain burning mm. yeah or no, quite, no. Uh, <laughs> but it's a fascinating um area of archaeological thought and of course a lot of i mean there's an entire conference that's dedicated to burning of buildings that's coming up oh is there yeah Oh, I think. Oh, okay. Do you know uh, we we can snip this bit out? 
Do you know, uh, can you tell us where it is? I can't remember. It is? I, I saw it just the other day and I thought, oh, that's interesting. So it'll be somewhere oh, in my yeah. millions of emails. Well, we'll have to look that one out. I, okay. I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm particularly interested. We did, I, I don't know if you've listened to many of our podcasts, if any, but mm-hmm. um, we have a whimsy section where if there's something that we don't agree with, then uh, we, we can be quite rude about it sometimes. Um, and one, one of the pieces uh, was at Must Farm. Um, yeah. Uh, which, good grief, what an extraordinary mm-hmm. uh piece of archaeology but the one of the theories uh, was that it was burnt down uh, deliberately and uh, i think uh, i we just called nonsense to that because when you look at all the things that were found with it you certainly wouldn't still have fabric on the loom oh uh, but, but i think uh, yeah isn't there the argument that it was burnt down as an aggressive act that it was attacked and people then had to flee. And that's why everything was left. That's a different theory. There is uh, a chap, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say, he's a very well-known archaeologist, mm-hmm. and off the top of my head I can't think of his damn name. <laughs> uh, but his theory was that, that no, this was a, you know, the, a ritual thing to, uh, to the, uh, you know, the gods of – because they'd only just built the damn place. It was like, you know, 18 months old or something ridiculous <laughs> that they could tell from the uh, mm. uh, from the wood. But um, but that was the thing. There was all sorts of stuff. Uh, like you Because know, it's the thing, if you're burning it down for the gods, well, you wouldn't have crap in it, would you? There was enough feces <laughs> around the place. Um, I don't but think you But, I mean, certainly <laughs> you know, basic anthropology will show you that people – do the the strange to us what seem to be the strangest and weirdest things <laughs> all around the yeah. world, and therefore we have to have an open mind. And I, th- I have do. to say, you know, and Must Farm is one of the best excavated sites. I mean, Mark yeah. Knight is yeah. fantastic. Chris Evans, the Cambridge Archaeological Unit, brilliant. They're doing an yes. amazing job, and also a fantastic job in disseminating the results as they come in, yes. yeah. which is so yeah. important. Which means that everybody gets the opportunity to make up their own mind about what happened, yeah, yeah? which is fantastic. Well, and that is yeah. that is the key thing, to, to give enough, provide enough information so that us now and people in the future that we can cogitate and discuss mm. the reasons, mm-hmm. yeah? Mm. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that, that was a, a digressionary loop, was it, that's, uh, that's now... now... <laughs> Just attack me, please. Yes, no. No, no, no. (laughs) Join the club. Having got to the Ness of Brodga, Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you a question, Alison, and it's this. Is it possible, do you think, to trace from the migrations that you're proposing, you know, whichever strand it may have been, is it possible to trace the strand by which, you know, the the ancestors of whom would have been those that first gave us grooved ware pottery from that the is, Ness of Brodka? That's a fantastic question, which is much on my mind. Great. Um, because but essentially, uh, Ness of Brodka, the very earliest grooved ware associated activity there is about the 32nd century BC, mm. by which time people had been farming on, on Orkney for several centuries. Yes. Um, and and an Orkney wasn't uh, wasn't part of the initial Neolithization of Britain and Ireland, no. yeah, okay? Yeah, yeah. But instead, um, people went from either the north of mainland Scotland or perhaps from the west of Scotland or perhaps both. Um so it's basically descendants of immigrant farmers, and it, it it's so so very interesting because the the earliest megalithic tombs seem to be passage tombs, and I think that maybe people had moved up from the west of Scotland, so mm-hmm. therefore there may well have been the kind of Breton genetic signature. Yes, and thereby hangs a tale because actually there are so few bones in Brittany surviving that you you can't tell what the Breton signature had been. But anyway, oh, really? whatever, okay. whatever. Yeah. Um, but also, <laughs> it's very clear that there is early modified carinated bowl at a place called Vestrafjold, and that is identical to pottery that you find in Caithness underneath oh. um, Camster Long tomb right so clearly i think people you know farming groups were going both from the northern mainland of scotland and from the west of scotland so it was probably a genetically hybrid population however Mm -hmm. that said 
some a vast number of individuals uh, from Orkney have had their DNA done, Neolithic mm-hmm. individuals. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember exactly what they say. They say that there is a so-called Iberian element in their genetic signature, but that right. is potentially a huge red herring. People mm-hmm. have made a lot of this so-called Iberian signature, and some geneticists have said, oh, therefore, people must have come from Iberia as part of the first Neolithic. No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> and if only we had, and in fact, when not so much genetic stuff analysis has been done in northern France yet. They are doing it. They have a little bit of catching up to do. But they have found in the Paris Basin, their Neolithic population also have an element of a so-called Iberian signature. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think if you if you were to find well-preserved bones in Brittany of Neolithic farmers, you would probably find it's the same there. Yeah. So, mm. so therefore, for people to, to jump in and say they must have come from Iberia, that's, that's yeah. nonsense because archaeologically okay. there's no evidence for that. Yes. Yeah. And so I think I hope I've answered your question by saying I think it was probably a mixture of people from different parts of mainland Scotland. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it would have been a hybrid thing. What you can say about uh, Neolithic Orkney is that it was a very fertile area. And so you will have had prosperous farmers for whom cattle would have been an amazing element of wealth. Yeah, mm-hmm. and also clearly um, they were competitive with each other, so they would try and outbuild. You know, the, the, mine is a better and a bigger and a finer monument for my ancestors than yours is. Yeah, mm. and around three thousand two hundred BC, some of these kind of young bucks, as it were, these elite, <laughs> yeah, because you'll get differentiation in society. Some actually, because of prior existing links that linked Orkney with the Western Isles and the Western Isles with Ireland, they had got to hear about the amazing passage tombs in the Boyne Valley, Newgrange, ah, Nowth okay. and Douth. Yeah? Yes. So they sailed from Orkney to Newgrange, Nowth and Douth, the bend of the Boyne. And they had a fantastic, they joined in the midwinter solstice celebrations there. They thought, we want a piece of this. So they brought, they came back to Orkney and, and then they built Maze Howe. Because yeah? Yeah. if you look at the plan, the ground plan of Maysehow and Newgrange, there are lots of similarities. So it's got a very long uh, passage. And at Maysehow, yeah. there was a single 18-meter-long slab of sandstone that went I mean, it well. architecturally it well. yeah. fabulously made. Mm. It's got a cruciform chamber, which is yeah. exactly yeah. the same as in Newgrange. It is aligned on the midwinter solstice sun. So at Newgrange, it's the sunrise that that shines in along the passage into the chamber. And mm. at, at uh, Maysehow, it's the setting sun. Mm. And it may well be that it's simply because of the different um, latitude that mm. it works better to have it as a setting yeah. sun in, in Orkney than, than the rising sun. But mm. clearly that, and also the fact that elsewhere on these Maysehow type passage tombs, they are using Irish style um, megalithic art. So you get the spirals and the um, concentric circles um, yeah. that you get, get in the Boyne Valley. So mm. to my mind, there is no doubt that they were undertaking what Mary Helms has called cosmological acquisition. And yeah. this is, they go to somewhere a long way. It's like an Odysseus-like voyage. Yeah. So they get these experiences and these ideas and maybe exotic objects. They bring them back to Orkney and they get one up over all their friends and enemies Yeah, mm. by saying, Bing, bish bosh, here's Maze How, I win. And then somebody else builds another another one, you know. And yeah. so this competitive conspicuous consumption. And what is so fascinating is that you can then see a reciprocal influence. So as Orkney becomes um, a famous place to which people come, and I think the Ness of Brogger Temple complex, if you want to use that term, will have become a magnet for people from far and wide. Mm. Yeah, it would have become one of the wonders of the ancient world. I wouldn't would not call it the capital of Britain. I think that's very misleading. <laughs> very, very, very misleading. Good headline um, though. Yeah. Nor- Yes, well, that's it, yes. Nor would I talk about a united Britain is turning its back on Europe. Bullshit. Um, But however, be that as it may, um, what we then find is that in the Boyne Valley, you find people using mace heads that are exactly the same as the mace heads that are used in Orkney and elsewhere in Scotland. And at Nowth, yeah, and at Nowth, I was shown some beads and I recognised these are miniature six-knobbed carved stone balls. Yeah. So they've seen Scottish carvestone balls and they thought, we like these. And so they made beads in the shape of these things. Absolutely fantastic. And, and they, also, only... they also adopted Groovedware from Orkney. 
So you're going to say? No, well, I was just going to say, and it's only by covering so much area as you have done in, in mm. you know, your lifetime of study that you can bring these things together and bring us full circle. I mean, it's, it's been fast, fantastic because <laughs> I think we've gone on a brilliant uh, journey tracing our ancestors right round from Brittany to Orkney. And I, I think I think we've told a, a good story yeah. about, you know, I mean, it's very broad and sweeping, obviously. Mm. Um, but I, I, I really think this brings a whole different complexion to the way people are able to think about uh, how things happened in those years between the latter bit of the fifth millennia mm. BC um, towards um, the end of the fourth. So that is absolutely brilliant. It's wonderful to be able to just bring all that knowledge into, uh, well, you know, try to praise yes a little bit. It's, mm, uh, mm. We we could just talk for hours. There's, if you don't mind, I have to ask you uh, some of the the less important but uh, but equally interesting things. Of, out of all the places that you've been, that you've worked, that you've researched, which is your favourite site of all? Oh, no. There cannot yeah. be a single one. Uh, <laughs> but I do have to say, I absolutely adore Callanish. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and I was, I was very privileged to become a director of the Uratsnanturshikan, the Kalanish Trust. So we are going to wow. look oh, after wow. Kalanish into the future. And mm. it has, it, Kalanish has an important role to play in that story that I was telling of <sighs> these amazing reciprocal movements of ideas and people between Orkney and Ireland. And so yes. if you go to the Stones of Stenness, yeah, which yeah. we know was constructed in the 13th century BC, yeah. you'll see it's tall, narrow stones. Yeah. Yep. If you go to Callanish, the earliest uh, element of Callanish was a stone circle with a standing stone in the middle with tall, narrow stones. If you go yes. to Macri Moor on Arran, the, it's, it's, it actually started off as a tim set of timber circles, but then you get tall stones in a circle. Mm -hmm. And I think it was that was a particular practice and a set of beliefs. So they, they, they liked to go for ceremonies that involved open air activities featuring a stone circle. Mm. Yeah, And then Callanish itself has got the most amazing story so that later on bits were added. So they added um, north, south, east and west avenues and lines. So and and uh, and the beaker around the time when beakers started to be used. And that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Around 2500 <laughs> BC, they actually built a chamber tomb in the middle of the stone circle, which was an, a radical thing to do. Oh, and that, they, was, that was beaker. That was beaker people. That was beaker. Was it? Oh my goodness! It's probably it is the latest chamber tomb to be built in. Scotland uh, mm -hmm. might be the latest chamber tomb to be built in Britain, but they also built the um, the southern um, avenue. So, and they aligned or realigned the site so that you know the moon has got a long eighteen point six year cycle as well as a, a monthly cycle. Yes, yes. And every eighteen point six years, and I think twenty twenty two is the next time it'll do it. Mm. If you are walking up the southern avenue towards a stone circle at midsummer with a full moon then the moon, as it is setting, I think it's setting, yeah. appears to go along the horizon, yeah. dip below a hill, and then appear in a gap between two and That's fill the centre of the stone circle. That, to yeah. me, is incredibly special. And people go on and on and on about Stonehenge. Stonehenge is fantastic, but Callanish is even more fantastic. But don't flock to it in your hundreds of thousands. Don't spoil it. <laughs> Uh, we, we've only been to the Kalanish uh, the once when we were making our film way back in 2006, seven was it? Uh, I Rupert? think it was yeah. 2006. We were and um, yeah, for my pains, I, I, I got to make a, um, a, a sort of computer uh, recreation, uh, uh, animation of that very sequence that you just described. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's in the film of the moon skimming along the horizon and appearing between the two stones. Oh, there. Yeah. fabulous. Yeah. So, you know, we, we're longing to get that back there ourselves. Uh, and, yes. and, and I think you're right, we need to revisit and tell the, the story of Kalanish a bit more fully. Perhaps that's Ooh, something we, we, we should do. Put I, think, uh, um, I think we should probably be careful about the uh, the 2022 uh, because I think there's 
probably going to be an awful lot of people turning up there. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. one thing that is uh, is, is <laughs> planned is to redevelop the visitor centre so that there right. is that it's, it gives you a more up-to-date and a thorough presentation of the archaeology, not just of Kalanish, but also of the area, because there's oh, lots brilliant. of small other um, stone circles, yes. mm. but also more yes. broadly the, the Outer Hebrides uh, prehistory. Mm. And it's, mm. it's, the, the Trust is doing fantastic work. And is trying mm. to generate money for a fund to promote and undertake more uh, prehistoric archaeology in the Western Isles, which would be great. Alison, if yeah. you could steal an artifact oh, no. <laughs> out of your out of your displays anywhere mm-hmm. uh, from a museum anywhere, what what would you have? Something that you know, an artifact that you know. What would you? What one well, thing would you like to keep for yourself? I, I don't need to steal it because I've got a copy of it. And the fantastic Graham Taylor, I got four amazing gifts when I retired. And I just, I love my colleagues and they were so kind and thoughtful. One of these was a fabulous necklace that features 3D prints of 3D scanned objects. So we've got a car- two cast stone balls, two mace heads and a triangular spiky thing from Scarabray um, uh, with beads that look like jade, which oh, is amazing. Geez. That is fantastic. So Hugo Anderson, why not? Thank you for that. I also got this replica of the Akhenakribeg pot, the one with oh, the, yeah, the arcs, right. uh, the rainbows, made the rainbows, by Graham yeah. Taylor, who is the best Potter to do to replicate prehistoric stuff. I'm as happy as so. And then the third present was a drawing of a jet spacer plate necklace from Inch Marnock that I had worked on. And the fourth is a conference in my honour uh, next autumn about links between Scotland and Ireland in prehistory. So I am absolutely knocked out. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Oh, that's, fantastic. Be- that's beautiful. Your cup runneth over with. Oh, it does. <laughs> yeah. It does. Yeah. And also, and also I'm, I'm very, very flattered that I've been put up as archaeologist of the year for the current archaeology award. Yes. So vote for me. Already, well already have, Alison. Oh, already thank you. Have. Yes. <laughs> Open till the 20th of February. <laughs> Well deserved. So I've, I've, I'm, I feel amazingly privileged and so happy and so completely fulfilled. I'm, I'm yeah, happiest bunny in the world. Which is a very, very good note to finish on, I think, Alison. Thank you so much for being yes. our guest with the Prehistory Hon- Guys podcast. Honestly, could listen to you all day long. <laughs> so thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> If you're still listening, just a reminder that if you enjoyed this show and would like an opportunity to support us in growing the Prehistory Guys project, the podcasts, the films, the live streaming shows, you can do so via the Patreon crowdfunding platform. Go to patreon.com slash theprehistoryguys to become part of the team, help enable our work going forward, and to unlock special content only available to our patrons. Until the next time, once again, thanks for listening.